This is Pandemic Planet, the podcast where we talk about the urgent health security threats facing the world, the geopolitical and societal challenges they present, and how the United States can best lead health security efforts abroad while protecting Americans at home. Pandemic Planet is the podcast series of the CSIS Commission on Strengthening America's Health Security. While our sister podcast series, Coronavirus Crisis Update, focuses on what's happening in America, here on Pandemic Planet, we'll look at the global and geopolitical effects of health security threats. Welcome to Pandemic Planet. Hello, and welcome to a new episode of Pandemic Planet. I'm Catherine Bliss, and I'm joined today by my colleagues Errol Yaiboke, Senior Fellow and Director of the CSIS Project on Fragility and Mobility, and Jake Kurtzer, Director and Senior Fellow with the CSIS Humanitarian Agenda. Errol brings experience working with the NGO sector in fragile settings such as South Sudan, Iraq, and Ethiopia to his work on opportunities to improve policy and programming vis-a-vis migrant populations worldwide. Jake draws on his work with the International Committee of the Red Cross in Myanmar, South Africa, and South Sudan in leading CSIS's efforts to analyze U.S. and global support for vulnerable populations in conflict and humanitarian settings. Now, in the past, the three of us have been together on panels and discussions related to the situation in Venezuela, the Venezuelan diaspora in South America, as well as the movement of people through Central America and Mexico to the southern border. We're here today to discuss the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on migrant, displaced, and refugee communities worldwide, including how things have changed for these exceptionally vulnerable populations over the course of the pandemic, what it takes to reach stateless communities with health and other social services when those services are, by and large, distributed by public officials or state actors, or at the very least funded through public accounts, and what Errol and Jake are watching or keeping track of as the distribution of COVID-19 vaccines scales up slowly in critical world regions. So Errol and Jake, welcome to Pandemic Planet. Thanks for having us. So I want to start off by asking you to go back in your minds to March of 2020, around the time that the World Health Organization declared the COVID-19 outbreak to be a pandemic, and very quickly, things shifted to remote work and distance learning. And, you know, this was back when it was hard to get groceries for a while, and it was even hard to get toilet paper. And in some places, people couldn't even leave their homes for exercise. So as all of this unfolded in different ways around the world, you know, some pundits were speculating that Africa or Latin America with relatively young populations might be spared the high transmission rates or or hospitalizations and deaths that were being reported in parts of Asia and Italy. But at the same time, others were really worried that densely populated refugee camps or migrant detention centers were absolutely the perfect setting, if if perfect is the right word, a ripe setting for rapidly escalating transmission of the virus and had the potential to spark local outbreaks as well. So Jake, let me start with you. Early on, as it became clear that this pandemic was going to be a global challenge, What were your initial thoughts about the populations you focus on? Migrants, refugees, displaced people. You know, were you hopeful or were you concerned? And did anything surprise you about how things unfolded in in those first few months? Thanks, Catherine. 
The answer is that anyone who works in the humanitarian sector starts from a point of concern. And in fact, we wrote a piece right at the onset of the pandemic, identifying the many ways in which we felt that civilians and conflict-affected areas, both in displaced persons camps or those who had taken refuge in cities or villages with host families, would be increasing at increased risk by virtue of what we knew at the time or what we understood to know at the time about the transmission. Cramped camp settings in Cox's Bazar, Bangladesh, or the high levels of density in Gaza to the humanitarian community represented uh, the worst possible scenario for the transmission of, of the virus. So I think there was a lot of anxiety at the onset about those populations that seem to be vulnerable by virtue of density and were living in contexts where the existing health infrastructure so medical facilities, as well as the other elements of infrastructure that we had been told in Washington were necessary to prevent the spread of transmission, hand washing, all these, you know, all those steps we were supposed to take. Those are resources that in many parts of the world in conflict affected areas are limited. Access to clean water, access to hygiene supplies was quite limited. And so I think the humanitarian community started from this is a worst case scenario and I think we realized quite soon that the worst case did not manifest, as we had predicted, a different kind of worst case manifested, which was the second order effects of the pandemic, the socioeconomic impacts, the restrictions on movement, which I think Errol can speak to. Some of those other impacts were affecting these already vulnerable communities more acutely and creating a much higher level of need in an environment where the international community was increasingly limited in its capacity to respond, both by physical presence, but also because of the immediate strain on resources, as this was a, a crisis that we were all experiencing at the same time. So, Errol, let me turn to you for a second. You know, back in 2020, in the spring of 2020, maybe around the same time that, that Jake and, and some colleagues put out this paper that he's mentioned, you published a piece looking at how COVID-19 was likely to change global migration flows. And, you know, obviously when you shut borders or suspend air and ground travel, it, it becomes hard to migrate from one country to another. But to some extent, internal migration and movement became difficult for people too. And so let me ask you, over that period since then, how much has the pandemic really undermined the flow of migrants who might largely move for economic reasons to find work and send remittances and money home to families? And have we seen a lot of people being forced to return to their country of origin or are people kind of suspended still between places? Uh, the short answer is yes, all of the above. I think that like Jake, uh, I was one of those analysts who was called into action at the beginning of COVID trying to figure out what was going on and, and what the impacts might be. And being on your podcast today was a really excellent opportunity for self-reflection on some of those initial fears. So I was among the group of folks who thought that there were certainly humanitarian impacts that Jake very eloquently summarized that, that were certainly fears. I was also really worried about 
a subset of economic migrants, which I don't love that term. Uh, people move for varied reasons, but let's just, for the sake of ease, call them economic migrants. I was mostly worried about the people on the low income end of the spectrum. I figured that people at the higher end of the spectrum who were able to work from home and, you know, work from our basements were going to be fine. But most migrants on the low income end of the spectrum don't have that opportunity. And so what was happening in, in around the world, including in the United States, was you had people who were on the low income end of the spectrum, which means that they didn't have access to great protection anyways. Uh, money affords protection everywhere in the world. And they were being thrust into, those that were still able to have jobs were thrust into the front lines of the the pandemic. So in the United States and in Europe and around the world, the healthcare sector is in large part staffed by migrants, by people from other places. And so you had vulnerable people who were having to be outside of their home, so thus at greater risk to exposure to the virus, all while being on the lower end of, uh, lower income end of the spectrum. And so at the same time, you had lockdowns, both kind of domestic, but also the inability to travel across borders that made it really difficult for people who are not working in some of those essential sectors to actually earn income. And so this led to something that you alluded to, Catherine, stranded migrants. By some estimates, there were about 3 million people that were stranded starting in, in March of last year. People like Central Asians who were in Russia working on construction and just sort of unable to return home. South Asians working in the Gulf states unable to go home. I think that has largely smoothed out uh, over the last 16 months, but it was certainly a, a fear... Uh, of mine that that was at some level borne out by what happened. So in that piece, you also looked at the experience of forced migrants and asylum seekers. And as Jake has, has suggested, said, these populations would be likely made more vulnerable to COVID-19 and other challenges because of the pandemic restrictions. You know, at the same time, you warned that it was likely that we would see more people kind of going underground or not trying to move through official channels, uh, kind of going into the shadows, I think is what you said. So have you seen more of that come to pass over this period? And how do you think that is likely to play out now that, I mean, on the one hand, we're seeing Europe talk about a pass, you know, there's all this discussion of different kinds of vaccine passports, and we can talk about the COVID-19 vaccines in a little bit, but what do you see about this, this movement toward more migration in the shadows during this period? I think during the period, there's limited data and what data we have suggests that the cross-border movements of people, irregular movements of people, haven't been huge. I think my fear, both in that piece and a fear that I still have, is more about the reorientation of, of migration, whereby some of the restrictions and conditions that are in place right now, the longer they last, the more desperate people are going to get to move, and the fewer avenues through which they can safely and orderly and regularly move will be limited. The, the longer that phenomenon exists, the more people are going to seek out 
on the on the legit side, they're going to seek out employment agencies and things like that. But on the sort of illegitimate side, they're going to seek out uh, smugglers and traffickers and, and other things. And even if they're not seeking them out, people who would otherwise be moving are going to be more vulnerable where they are and thus more susceptible to exploitation. Both of you have experience working with mobile populations in fragile or conflict settings from Sub-Saharan Africa to Asia and, and Latin America. And while there are certainly considerable differences in the history and context of local conflicts and refugee or migrant flows, there are also kind of some similar overarching challenges kind of across the board in terms of providing services to, to stateless populations or these populations who may not you know, have lost their work, but then haven't been able to, to get home during this period. Then on top of all that, as you know, COVAX is the vaccine pillar of the Access to COVID-19 Tools Accelerator, which the international community set up last spring in April of 2020 to kind of move forward progress and global distribution of the COVID-related diagnostics, therapeutics, and vaccines. And now there have been a number of COVID-19 vaccines approved. So far, the high-income countries have been faster to secure supplies and vaccinate their populations. And COVAX has distributed just around 120 million vaccines to the lower and lower middle-income countries. And it looks like COVAX supplies will improve toward the end of this year, but right now, supplies and distribution is pretty limited. Now, earlier this year, COVAX set up something called the Humanitarian Buffer, which essentially sets aside a portion of funds to enlist non-governmental groups to deliver vaccines to refugees and, and migrant or displaced populations that aren't necessarily formally enrolled through health insurance schemes or, or through, through the health sector within particular countries. Errol, can you describe some of the challenges that are faced around the delivery of health and social services to non-citizen populations or, or to non-state populations? And how prepared are NGOs, you think, to deliver vaccines to populations in fragile settings? And what are some of the places where you've seen migrant groups really fall through the cracks in the provision of, of this kind of service? Sure. I'll, I'll talk briefly about migrants, and then maybe Jake can talk more about kind of displacement scenarios. Um, one of the places where I, I have my biggest fears is in migrant detention centers. Um, it, it's It's kind of when you think about people on the move, vulnerable people on the move, especially people moving irregularly outside of, you know, in the shadow or outside of some sort of regular means, the the place that is the scariest from a virus spreading perspective is a migrant detention center. This happened in this country, in the United States. It's happened in Libya. It's happened around the world. There's a great report on this, by the way, by the Humanitarian and Development Research Initiative. It's out of a university in Australia called COVID-19 Impacts on Immigration Detention, which I would recommend to all of your listeners. But essentially, some of their takeaways are, are very scary. These are much like jails in a lot of places. These are, are people, and, and oftentimes worse than jails, these are places where people are in very close quarters with bad access to hygiene. And as people are unable to move, they will be increasingly, as I had said before, increasingly seeking out ways of moving irregularly and thus more prone to the only response that seems to 
be getting any traction by governments out there, which is let's stop and incarcerate or, or um, put into detention centers people on the move. Um, there's less efforts by the international community and by governments to attack the smuggling routes and the people who are moving people. And it's sort of easier to put vulnerable people into detention centers and thus put them at, at, at higher risk of, of COVID. And by the way, it's not just them at higher risk of COVID. It's, it's all of us at, at higher risk because those are certainly places where the virus can really grow. You had mentioned, Catherine, in, in the question, the capacity of the organizations that work in humanitarian contexts to deliver the vaccines. And I think it's, it is an interesting and appropriate question to ask, but it's also one that's aspirational, right? Because COVAX, as you mentioned, already has a relatively limited stock of supplies, and the humanitarian buffer is a very, very small percentage of that. And so I think that humanitarian organizations, I mean, the humanitarian infrastructure writ large has demonstrated a, an exceptional logistical supply chain to get stuff from point A to wherever in the world point B might be. And there were a lot of questions at the onset when we learned about the different vaccines, about cold chains, things of that nature. But even, even cold chain vaccines have gotten to far flung corners of the world through various different methodologies. So I don't think that's the concern for the humanitarian community is not getting the vaccines where they need to go. It's getting the vaccines in the first place. What's interesting about the conversation about the humanitarian buffer is also, I think, and it gets a little bit into the politics of COVAX at large, is um, humanitarian organizations are very concerned about the liability questions if they do deliver these vaccines. Unfortunately, there are two different kinds of vaccine hesitancy in the world. There's the highly politicized vaccine hesitancy we're seeing in the United States, and there's vaccine hesitancy in various parts of the world where either from experience with previous public health scenarios or from a perfectly reasonable lack of nuanced understanding of what a, the vaccines might entail, populations don't want to take the vaccines. And I think the potential for legal liability in some of the contexts, it's an issue that I understand has not been worked out between COVAX, the NGOs that would be asked to administer them, and the suppliers of the vaccines themselves of what if something goes wrong in a, with a vaccine that's distributed to a community that may already be reluctant to take a vaccine from an international organization. So I think the humanitarian community is ready and is capable, but is still dealing with the fact that these vaccines are in short supply and are not really being made available to those people at the far end of the vulnerability spectrum. Can I make a quick point on the, on the vaccine buffer as well? When you read about the humanitarian buffer, even from Gavi uh, and, and COVAX itself is they frame it as a measure of last resort. And that's what it should be seen as. I think it's laudable that COVAX is putting in a certain amount of its resources and allocations towards people living in fragile and conflict-affected areas, which is primarily what the, what the humanitarian buffer is for. However, that's not a substitute for incorporating 
vulnerable people of all types, including migrants, refugees, asylum seekers, et cetera, into national vaccination plans. And so that's where the efforts, the biggest efforts need to be going right now. So, I mean, it's an interesting question, this problem of liability, because COVAX, I think, has negotiated that directly with the countries. But when you're asking the NGOs to, to make the deliveries, you know, on the one hand, Jake, as you pointed out, I mean, those populations are ones that may be more skeptical of government. You know, they've had bad experiences with, with government or they really may not have seen COVID in their communities, but have other health needs. And so may kind of say, well, why are you coming here with this vaccine when I need clean water or I need other kinds of things instead? On the other hand, but asking the government to take on responsibility for incorporating those populations into the national plans, you may then put the government in the place of, of delivering those that then creates yet more hesitancy and, and confusion. So you can see where this becomes a, a dynamic problem um, over over a longer period. Jake, you know, I wanted to to ask you with with all of these challenges and, and populations really falling through the cracks in so many ways. Are there countries or regions where you have seen coming out of uh, this pandemic and the crisis any innovations or positive developments in the, the humanitarian setting that that may be adopted and and become part of the, the larger process? I'd like to say yes. I think the reality is most of the success stories in terms of efforts to mitigate the spread of the virus in contexts of great concern drew on extensive humanitarian experience in other in other ways, right? So there is there is a real lesson learned from the Ebola outbreak of how to approach communities, the idea of we're from the international community and we're here to help and do what we say is just not effective. And so I think what you saw in places where distancing and water stations and all these things that, that we had sort of assumed were necessary at the onset were, were implemented effectively, they relied on meaningful engagement with the communities of concern themselves and having an honest dialogue about what is being asked and why and putting community leaders themselves at the forefront of that kind of public health messaging. And this is, you know, this idea of community engagement is increasingly understood as to be essential for any humanitarian action, for the action itself and for the long-term relationship between the communities. And so I, what I think is less innovations from COVID and more of COVID demonstrated some good case, you have some good examples of the COVID response drawing on lessons learned from, you know, lessons learned from humanitarian action over the course of the years being applied very quickly in an emergency context all around the globe. So it sounds like in some ways it's less of the new innovation with adoption of new kinds of digital technologies or telehealth or any of these things and more of the kind of old fashioned trust building and relationship building that we've known for a long time is important, but it's really put front and center in this particular crisis. Yeah, I mean, I think low tech solutions in this particular crisis are the most important, right? I mean, telehealth is not necessarily that useful when you're trying to prevent the transmission of a virus. But there is a there is one really interesting example of 
applying an innovation in this context. And that's UNRWA, the Palestinian Refugee Organization. Because of the nature of that humanitarian challenge, they had already been doing telehealth and some elements of virtual education. And so UNRWA in Gaza, and I believe in one of the other countries that they operate in, was able to pivot on a dime, I mean, very, very quickly to going back to telehealth and back to to virtual education because they had already implemented innovations in the delivery of, of essential services. Interesting. So my last question for each of you is just to ask, what issues are you keeping your eyes on in this sector? And, you know, really, how do you see prospects for improvement in the situation of migrants and refugees over the short and medium term? Or are you optimistic? Or are you really concerned that some of the the challenges, the deepening of poverty, the lack of vaccines in in so many areas and real persistence and now emergence of, of so many different viral variants is going to really exacerbate the challenges in the areas you work on in the long term. Uh, so optimism or um, longer term challenges? Errol, let me turn to you. I think the first quick answer to your question is that the optimism or pessimism that I have is actually more directly related to the stuff that you live and breathe every day, Catherine. Can we actually solve the public health challenge that's in in front of us because I think if we can do that then there will be the opportunity to build back better we're not there yet places around the world are not thinking about building back they're they're still in survival mode and so that leads me to I, I have four or five different things that I'm tracking two of which we've talked about I, I'll certainly be tracking the irregular migration story here and, and whether we see some evidence of, of people moving more through the shadows as uh, formal pathways continue to be uh, less accessible to them. Jake mentioned the vaccine hesitancy thing, which is something I was going to bring up too. I think the general distrust of authority that exists in communities of people on the move is both well-documented and and totally understandable. These are people for whom formal structures have failed. And so why would they trust formal structures? Third, I think that, and I wrote about this last year, and I still think this, I think that there's going to be a a reorientation of global migration patterns, and there even might be a reorientation in displacement. So in displacement, I think as movement from countries to countries continue to be challenging, whether restricted or based on conditions, vulnerable people who are forced from home are not going to be able to meet most of those conditions. May they be documentation or whatever. So I think we're going to see a shift from kind of cross-border displacement, so refugees, to more internal displacement. And some of the initial data from UNHCR and IOM is, is actually pointing in that direction. On the migration side of that reorientation, I think that there's there's some weird examples like Germany flying in agricultural workers um, that are, are going to be kind of Band-Aid type solutions. But I think the longer the developing world in particular is is behind on vaccinations and, and unable to, like I said, get to the point where they're building back at all the more they're going to seek opportunities domestically or regionally, lower income, higher risk, less protections, etc. Lastly, I think there's 
And, and related to that last point, I, I'm going to be tracking the increases in inequality between and within countries, uh, and in particular, in between non-moving populations and moving populations. So people in the United States are already thinking about and, and at some points going on vacation to Europe, for example. We are part of the moving populations and there's huge swaths of the world that are part of the non-moving. So our economies may be able to, to inch back and, and theirs are not going to be able to. And do you see this discussion about vaccine passports just requiring people to have a vaccine in order to go places. And of course now, you know, with the great disparities between the high income and the lower and middle income countries, I mean, do you see that ultimately creating greater challenges around migration as well? Absolutely. It's, it's yet another thing that people on the move have to have. I'm not going to comment on whether or not vaccine passports are a good thing. I'm just going to say in practice, it's another thing. It's another document that people have to have. And in a lot of the places that are that migrants are coming from, I'll talk about migrants only in this case, a lot of the places where they're coming from, it's hard for them to get passports. It's hard for them to get have a bank account or other things that you sort of have to prove to be able to move. And so not only getting access to a vaccine, but then having the, the requisite documentation uh, seems like another barrier. It may be a one that has to happen. Again, I'm not going to comment on that, but it's, it is sort of another thing that migrants are going to have to have. So Jake, thinking about the humanitarian sector and the challenges faced by refugees and, and those really enmeshed in fragile and conflict settings and, and that that world, you know, what are you keeping track of and, and what what are your concerns and what gives you hope as we move into the next half of 2021? Yeah, I'll start. Maybe I should end with the positive, but I'm going to start with the with the positive. The first is I think it changes in the way we think about the world as a collective probably take a long time to permeate into public opinion polls and things of that nature. But I am hopeful that the felt experience of the entirety of the global population of what it is like to be confined to your home, scared, uncertain about your future, unable to see your family and friends will portend some level of increased empathy for those in other parts of the world who are experiencing those same issues as a result of violence or, or natural disaster or whatever it may be. I suspect we'll see actually just polarization on the issue, right? Some people will become more, well, we just got to take care of ourselves because the world's crazy. And some people will become even more empathetic. But my hope and my belief is that there will be an increased understanding of that reality, as well as the opportunity that the United States has to assist people in a very interconnected world. On a practical sense, one interesting outcome so far from humanitarian response to the pandemic has been, we have had, I mean, in social science, you couldn't get a better test case for a different way of doing your work, right? Organizations were compelled to work differently by 
duty of care and the practicalities of working. So NGOs and international organizations extracted international staff and handed over the keys to their local employees or the local partners and said, hey, here's here's the money and here's the plan and run with it. And so far, there's been a couple of really interesting reports that have said there has been no meaningful negative consequences to having the national or local organizations run these essential programmings. And that that is a interesting data point towards a fundamental objective of humanitarian action, which is that it should be locally led and it should empower, you know, local organizations. So I think there's a really there's a there's a bright spot from from some of this, which is we, we've got the data now and we can we can point to the the test case that was carried out perfectly ethically, right, because it had to happen. And so that, I think, is one of the positives, right? We've seen that that we can work differently. The negatives, I think, are that the number of people in need are are higher than ever, both because of increase in conflict in the context of the last year and because of the socioeconomic and health impacts of COVID. COVID itself has become a contested issue by non-state armed groups or by authoritarian states, and I think it will continue to be another variable that makes humanitarian crises more complex and makes responding to them even more challenging for the international community where there, when there's a role for it to play. You've seen different armed groups of various different size and scope either denying access to health workers, uh, exploiting fears, using, you've seen states using this to shut down borders and move populations. And so I think this thing that we now all understand is just one other element that will complicate and create uh, more difficult living conditions for people whose circumstances are already quite difficult. And I don't see any particular light at the end of the tunnel in that respect. When I look at the Syrias, the Yemens, the Afghanistans of the world, I think that COVID is, and the response to COVID is going to make those operational environments extremely complicated and and will contribute to extending the need and extending the amount of resources that are needed to help people live in, in health and dignity. So I'm optimistic about some of the trends in the sector. I'm pessimistic about the realities on the ground as in the context of a year and a half into this pandemic. So it sounds like on the one hand, greater polarization, as you said, in so many places, including here in the US and and even in Washington, DC, COVID has been a highly contested issue that's really forced people to kind of dig in their their positions and and take sides. A greater uh, extent of poverty and food insecurity and and challenges, and of course, all the, the reporting around the impacts of climate change on drought and heat is certainly affecting populations around the world in, in the same way. But as you pointed out, through this kind of natural experiment, greater evidence for the potential for local organizations and a high level of capacity at the local level for addressing needs right there on the ground. And hopefully the potential for, for us as a global community coming out of this common experience with a greater appreciation of, of our common humanity and, and shared potential as, as an international community. So Jake and Errol, thank you very much for speaking with me today. 
and good luck with your current projects and work in the months ahead. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 